beautiful morning we've been blessed with, and we get to spend it in the house of the Lord together and reading and learning His Word. That's a wonderful privilege that we have. So we can open up our Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 12, and we'll finish up chapter 12 and get through chapter 13. Might be a new record for us. So we'll, we'll be plugging away here. In chapter 12, we saw uh, that Abraham, now Abram, was called by God from his home in Ur of the Chaldeans. And we looked at where we think Ur is and where other people think Ur is. So we looked at all of that, but God told him to leave his country, his family, and his father's house and go to a land that God would then show to him not knowing where he was going. And after moving a small distance from his hometown with all of his family, he finally stepped into God's calling on his life and actually uprooted and moved into the land of Canaan. And there he pitched his tent and he built an altar to the Lord. The two sort of symbols that we see over and over in Abram's life, the tent and the altar, And he called upon the Lord. In the promised land, he called upon the Lord. And there God appeared to him and confirmed what he had already promised Abraham once again. He said, this is where I want you. This is the land that I'm going to give your descendants. That's where God wanted him. What a great place to be, right in the middle of where the Lord has for you. But a famine came over the land of Canaan. You know, Abram is being looked at by all these people he's coming into the land with. His family, his servants, everyone that's traveling with him, they're all looking at him. And I'm sure when this famine hit, they're they're thinking, are you sure that you heard from God to come here? Is this really what we've been promised? We've come all this way, and we get a famine. And Abram has to say, yeah, that's what God said. But it could be because of all that pressure that he caves. And we'll see him this week go down into Egypt to escape the famine, to find provision for his family. And that took him out of what God had planned for him. He ran into trouble, into difficulty and trial in the land of Canaan, in the promised land. And when that happened, it got hard for him to sustain his family there. And the natural thing to do is to move. It's to go down to Egypt like anyone else of that time would and find sustenance. The problem with the common sense thing in his case is that it's not what God called him to do. And we'll see that what follows this decision to move down into Egypt is not a moral high point in Abram's life. And I don't think it's a high point of any sort for him because some really troubling things happen. And all of it seems to be a huge waste of time. You know, and it delays God's great plan for him. 
we'll see after his brief stint in Egypt, Abram returns to the exact same place that he pitched his tent in chapter 12, verse 8, right between Bethel and Ai. So he leaves from there, goes down to Egypt, all this mess happens, and he goes right back to where God had him in the first place. Seems like a huge waste of time. And what we need to see from this is how Abram tries to muscle his way through this trial that God placed in front of him. He tries to complete in the flesh what God began in the spirit. And Paul writes to the Galatians about that same thing. And this seems to be something that Abram struggles with. You know, I have no doubt that he's a man's man. Got a a burly beard, probably pretty muscular from working all of his life. And he likes to take care of things, right? All of us guys just like to take care of stuff. We don't like to wait and really see how it sorts out. We just want it to be right. And I think that that's, that's kind of what Abram struggles with here. And that's how he approaches some of the tough spots in his life. But God asks him to trust his plan for his life and to lean on his power not Abram's own power. Let's read verses 10 through 20 in chapter 12. Abram's now leaving Canaan, going into Egypt. It says in verse 10, Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to dwell there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai, his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore, it will happen when the Egyptians see you that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. So it was when when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her or praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female and male servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord plagued Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And the Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Again, not a moral high point for Abram here. And when we look at Egypt in the Bible, it's consistently used as a type for the world and all that is in the world, you know, a a life of sin, you know, the things of the flesh. And this first time Egypt is mentioned in the Bible, it's seen by Abram as a place of retreat. He's leaving his problems, going to Egypt which is seen as the world. 
he's turning to the pleasures of the world to escape his problems. You know, and it doesn't take much explanation for you to know that that's not what we should do as Christians. But the reality of Egypt is made painfully clear as the people of Israel come under the bondage of Egypt, those being Abram's descendants. Again, we see this parallel between Egypt and the world. At first, a life of sin looks intriguing. It draws us towards it. And it even looks like an oasis to escape our lives' troubles. But as time passes, we begin to realize that we've become slaves to all that is in the world. And the prince of this world, Satan, is a harsher taskmaster than those in Egypt. Abram's first mistake was going to Egypt in the first place, which God had not called him to do. And this descent into the world only brought trouble. Verse 11, And it came to pass, when he was close to entering Egypt, that he said to Sarai his wife, Indeed, I know that you are a woman of beautiful countenance. Therefore it will happen, when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister, that it may be well with me for your sake, and that I may live because of you. It seems here he's trusting his protection, his security to his wife, not to the Lord, right? And there are some things that our spouses just can't be for us. It's really, it's a dangerous place to be when you place your spouse in a role that God should be occupying in your life. And when you really boil it down, that's what it is. Abram didn't trust God to provide safety for him, but took matters into his own hands and tried to muscle through it. And he does this by instructing his wife to lie about her relationship to him. We don't get this insight right away here, but later on in Genesis 20, verse 12, we see that Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister. So there was an element of truth to what he was saying here. It's not a total lie, rather a half-truth. But in God's eyes, it's a lie. It's all the same. You know, the intent of a half-truth is deception, just like the intent of a lie is deception. There is no real difference there. The intention is the same. And Abram's intention was to hide the full truth from the Egyptians. Now, it seems that he wasn't completely unfounded in his fear of being killed for his wife. That was actually a thing that happened. And there's been evidence found in ancient writings that even the ancients, these ancient people knew that adultery was wrong. The Suneiform tablets said that if they caught a man and woman in adultery, they would tie them together and throw them in the Euphrates River. They knew it was wrong, right? There was a punishment for that. In Assyria, if a woman was found cheating on her husband, 
they would cut her nose off. Walk around with two holes in your face so you could identify that she cheated on her husband. Now, if they knew adultery was wrong, what is the common sense thing to do if you see an attractive woman that's married? Can't commit adultery with her. Kill her husband, and then she's single. So that's what they would do. Of course, that's the logical thing to do. But seriously, this kind of thing has been mentioned in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Killing the husband so his wife would be available. And I'm sure that Abram knew this. And this was his attempt at saving his own skin. So he turns to Sarai and says, you're beautiful. You know, the Egyptians will want you. Would you lie for me and say that you're my sister so that I might live for your sake, right? It's for her sake, not his. There's no doubt that Sarai was physically beautiful, probably very striking. But the Hebrew word translated beautiful here can't be confined to describing only her feminine allure. There's something broader here that's being said. That same word is used to describe handsome men in the Bible. So it's not just a feminine type of beauty. And it was used to describe Joseph, actually. And it's used to describe a good-looking cow. Okay, so, so there's some different uses for it. So we're not talking about just her feminine beauty, but there's something radiant about her. Right? Y'all are all wondering, so I'll tell you. The cow reference is from when Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream in Genesis 41. So you can check that out. Um, there's, there's got to be more in view here than just her feminine allure. From Hebrews 11, we know that Sarai was a woman of faith. She was a godly woman who feared the Lord. And she was beautiful on the inside and out. And so I think that that's probably something that Abram saw, no doubt, but also the Egyptians saw in her. They saw something coming from her relationship with the Lord God. Just a suspicion I have, but I think that it's well-founded. 1 Peter 3 makes reference to Sarah by saying that she was a woman of God. Starting in verse 3, Peter writes, Do not let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart, with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So he said that Sarah, Sarai, is a godly woman, and she's submissive to her husband. But I want to clarify, if your husband is leading you into sin... You do not have to be submissive in that. The words of God and the expectations of God trump that of your husband. 
okay? And are not afraid with any terror. So I would imagine that Abram saw in his wife and what the Egyptians saw in her was more than that physical beauty, which no doubt was there. She was a woman of outstanding character. And you know when you were single and you were looking around. I'm sure many of the guys can relate and probably the ladies too. And you see a woman or a man who you think might be worth your time. They're physically attractive. You're attracted to them. You think, hey, I'm going to talk to them. So you go up and start making conversation, and there's just filth coming out of their mouth. It's very hard to stomach, and it's completely unattractive, to be quite honest. You know, it's one of the most unattractive things because what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what's in the heart. And so Sarah was no doubt beautiful on the inside and out. So Abram's here going into Egypt, and he ropes his wife into this half-truth. And no doubt it's a compromised position for both Abram and Sarai. And we'll see the effect of this compromise on their testimony. You see, it, it completely destroys the witness that they have for the Lord God. Verse 14, so it was when Abram came into Egypt that the Egyptians saw the woman, that she was very beautiful. The princes of Pharaoh also saw her and commended her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. He treated Abram well for her sake. He had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, female and male servants, female donkeys, and camels. So sure enough, Abram was right about something. He was right that the Egyptians took notice of Sarai, and the text says that they praised her to Pharaoh. That's, that's what commended means. And Sarai was taken into Pharaoh's household. And for all of the lies and getting his wife in this pickle, what does Abram get? Pharaoh gives him loads of gifts. It seems Abram was gifted all these servants and livestock. How unfair. That is completely unfair. And I'm sure Sarai was looking at this situation like she really got the short end of the stick here. What if Pharaoh actually tried to go through with the wedding? What was she to do then? What were they going to do? They had already entrenched themselves this far into the lie. How are they going to get out of this? Abram trusted Sarai for his safety at the outset, but the situation was altogether out of her control now. How could he continue to trust her in this type of a situation? Thankfully, God steps in to protect Abram. Because obviously he and his wife could not protect themselves now. Verse 17 says that the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? 
I might have taken her as my wife. Now, therefore, here is your wife. Take her and go your way. So Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So somehow, the truth actually gets back around to Pharaoh. And he realizes that Sarai, this woman he's brought into his house, is actually another man's wife. And this causes all sorts of trouble. And the concept of disease to these ancient people was more as divine justice. And so when Pharaoh sees these diseases, and by the way, some of them are. Some of them are divine judgment. Some of them less so, uh, more natural sort of cause. But that's how they viewed them, as judgment from gods. And so when Pharaoh sees this disease or this plague of some sort, not really told what it is, his mind goes to, well, this must be, there must be something wrong, right? And I'm being judged for it. So he looks around, he probably searches for the truth, and this lie is made clear to him. And I'm sure he was livid. And he's been gifting Abram all of this stuff. And I'm sure he's looking forward to having Sarai as one of his wives. He'd been lied to and taken advantage of. And on top of all that, God has plagued his household because of a lie that somebody else told. It was obviously enough to get Pharaoh's attention, and he's not happy about it. So he sends Abram with all that he had out of Egypt. It's interesting. Then Abram went up from Egypt he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him to the south. So Abram packs up all that he had, including all that he had acquired from Pharaoh, and he heads back up toward Canaan. And it's a little confusing here to read that they went up from Egypt and to the south, right? It's hard to reconcile in the same verse. But the word translated south is probably used here as a proper noun, and that word is Negev. And, of course, the Negev is the area south of Jerusalem, but it's in the southern part of Israel. And Abram would have come into the Negev after coming out of Egypt, heading north to Canaan. So there's no problem there. It's translated south, and that, is, that becomes the word for south in their language, Negev, I'm sure because of its relationship to Jerusalem. It is south of Jerusalem. So they come into the Negev out of Egypt, and they cross the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, So they come into south Israel, uh, what is today Israel. And I can't help but see some prophetic significance in Abram's little detour to Egypt. You know, I don't want to make too much of this, but if you look, you'll see some parallels between his journeys and the Exodus account. Could Abram have been acting out, unknowingly of course, what his descendants would later have to contend with? And this is just for your consideration. Again, I don't want to make too much of this, 
but I'm going to read through some of these parallels that we find between the two accounts. There was a famine in the land. Both of these times, the people went to Egypt to escape a famine. We see it in Genesis 12.10, and then later in Genesis 47.13. There was a descent into Egypt to sojourn, not to stay permanently. Genesis 12.10, and later in 47.27. There was an attempt to kill the males, but save the females. Genesis 12.12, and then in Exodus 1.22. There were plagues in Egypt. Genesis 12.17, and Exodus chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11. There was a spoiling of Egypt. Pharaoh gives Abram lots of material goods, and the Israelites leave Egypt with lots of material goods. Genesis 12, 16, and Exodus 12, 35, and 36. There was a deliverance from Egypt. Genesis 12, 19, and Exodus 15. And there was an ascent to the Negev, Genesis 13.1 and Numbers 13.17 and 22. So, interesting thing for you to consider, maybe look into on your own. But as we look at this time of compromise, and that's truly what it is for Abram, it makes him seem far more human to us. And I think that we can relate to him a little easier when we see him slip up like this. And there are a few major takeaways that I want us to take note of before we move on into chapter 13. The first of three is that Abram trusted his protection and preservation to Sarai, not to the Lord. You know, there really are some things that our spouses just can't do for us. And they were never meant to. And those things that God should be in charge of in our lives should remain in his control. Number two, just because you're being rewarded materially doesn't mean that God is actually blessing what you're doing. That's a huge misteaching these days. That if if you have faith, if you're doing what God tells you to do, you're going to be rich. You're going to be materially wealthy and blessed. That could not be further from the truth. In fact, it's almost, not quite, but it's almost the exact opposite. Jesus promises that the world will hate us because it hated him first. And he promises that there will be trials and tribulations in our life. Not everything is going to go hunky-dory. It's not always going to be unicorns and rainbows. The prophet Jeremiah struggled with this, and he asked, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? It's a hard question that we have to grapple with. It is. But just because you're being rewarded materially doesn't mean that God is necessarily blessing what you're doing. What is a good way to know if God is happy with you is by reading his word, right? Seeing what he has revealed of himself. Who is he? What is his character like? And is what I'm doing matching up with the character of God? That's a more sure way 
that we can know. Now, number three, a takeaway from this compromise position, sometimes when we take ourselves out of the place that God wants us to be, he has to get us back into that place before he can continue to work in us. And this was the case with Abraham. He ended up back in the exact same place that he started at before traveling down into Egypt. And in this case, it was his physical location that had to change and come back to where God wanted him. But it won't always be like that with us. You know, it can be the location of our heart. It can be the orientation, where we're pointed in life. But I am thankful that he is so patient with us, as he was with Abram. Verse 1 through 4 in chapter 13. Then Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that they had, and Lot with him, to the Negev. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. He goes back, and what does he do? He calls on the name of the Lord. This journey landed Abram and his family, everyone that was depending on him, right back in the spot that they had left when the famine began. What a waste of time, energy, and life. Unfortunately, we sometimes find ourselves looking back on the life we wasted in pursuit of things that did not matter. And you can't change the past, but you can change your priorities now, your orientation now, to create a future that you're content with and a future that God is calling you to. This return of Abram to the promised land seems to resume the narrative where God is dealing with him to bring about this nation. He had to be placed back into God's calling on his life to again become effective. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. Now, this is setting up the plot for the next little hiccup in their journey. We're, it's making sure that we know that Lot is traveling with Abram and that they both have flocks and herds of considerable size. And we see in the next verse, verse 6, Now the land was not able to support them, that they might dwell together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. The Canaanites and the Perizzites then dwelt in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. You know, what would the church look like if we said that to each other? You know, we walk out of here and say, Let there not be strife between us, because we're brethren. You know, just a a passing thought for you. <laughs> Is not the whole land before you? Please separate from me. 
If you take the left, then I will go to the right. Or if you go to the right, then I will go to the left. And so Abram's being gracious. And this is a great response to see coming from Abram because it seems like he's learning to lean more on God than on his own strength. He very well could have said, I'm going to take this good spot over here. You can have whatever's left over. And it would probably be within his right to do so. You know, he was older than Lot. He had taken care of Lot for several years. He probably could have said that and it would have been acceptable, but he doesn't. He's gracious. He was being easy to work with. And he was trusting, most of all, that the promise of God to give him this land would come to pass. And he's not muscling through it. He's letting God work. It seems that Abram's learning to let go, but Lot is learning to take hold. No doubt some part of Egypt has already rubbed off on Lot. And from here, he seems to seek the things of the world, at least be inclined to them. Verse 10, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. So this whole area was extremely fertile and well watered, not like it is today. And that's a great thing if it's well watered and you're trying to raise flocks and herds, if you're a nomad, a shepherd. And Moses inserts this note that it was well watered before God destroyed the cities of the plain because afterward it would turn into a salty area. That's why the Dead Sea is dead. The Dead Sea wasn't dead in those days. And it says that the land was like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. The fertility of this land, this plain, is compared to that of the Garden of Eden and that fertile area of Egypt toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. So Abram stays where God had placed him. But Lot sees this attractive piece of land, not too far to the east, and he decides he'll take that one. So Lot moves east to the cities of the plain, and we would come to understand that as Sodom and Gomorrah. And they're located at the southern part of the Dead Sea. Like I said, the Dead Sea was not salty as it is today, and so it could support life at that time. It was lush, beautiful around that area. And that's probably what drew worldly Lot there. He saw how good it looked. In verse 12 Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, good for Abraham. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Lot is still living in his tent at this point. It seems that he's 
kind of trying to cling to the fact that he is just a pilgrim passing through. But he pitches his tent where he can look out of it every morning and see the city of Sodom. It seems he's kind of inclining himself in that direction. This tells us something about the attraction to the city in Lot's heart. And this attraction to worldly things is going to lead him down a very dark path. And he'll eventually lose everything he once had because of this. You know, his marriage, his family, and his influence that he comes to possess in the city. Pitching his tent towards Sodom was just the first step. We later see him dwelling in the city itself. And then after that, he dwells in the gates of the city, which implies that he has some sort of a political role there. He's some kind of figure of authority in the city. And even though Lot was righteous, according to 2 Peter 2.7, verse 8 also says that his righteous soul was tormented from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. He chose to place himself in a place where they did not honor God, though he himself was righteous. It, it says it in 2 Peter 2.7. Though he was righteous, he put his family in a very poor position. And that ungodly city has a significant toll on his family. He actually loses his wife, and for all intents and purposes, he loses his daughters as well. They grow up seeing all of the sexual immorality going on around them, and that seeps in, and they end up seducing their dad and having kids by him. You know, so I say he lost his daughters as well. It's so sad, the toll that this decision takes on Lot. And Moses also inserts this comment that the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And as we move ahead, we'll see that in graphic detail. And the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants could also be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. God once again reaffirms this same promise to Abram that he would inherit this land. Abram had finally come back to the place where God wanted him. Then Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth trees of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built an altar there to the Lord. Now that's still in the promised land. Hebron is still in the land of Canaan. He moved from that place between Bethel and Ai, which is about 15 miles north of Jerusalem, to the terebinth trees of Mamre that are about 20 miles south of Jerusalem. 
So about roughly a 35-mile journey there. The plain of Mamre and the Terebinth trees of Mamre are named after an Amorite who was named Mamre. And we'll see more from him later. And it says that those trees are in Hebron. When he comes into Hebron, what does he do? It says that he built an altar there to the Lord. Again, he's seeking after the Lord. He comes back into fellowship with God. And this is a beautiful picture. Mamre means strength or fatness or vigor. And Hebron means association or communion. After Abram's journey to Egypt, he returns to a place of strength and vigor, which is found in communion with God. Of course, strength and vigor come with communion with God, right? Of course, that's how it is. You know, it's no surprise to us, yet so often we find ourselves dried up during the week because we neglect spending time with God. It's not a lack of knowing, it's just a lack of doing. And that's, that is the crux of most of the problems that we deal with. It's not a lack of knowing, it's a lack of doing. You know, we know so much of what we should be doing, we just don't do it. Do you love him? Do you love Jesus? Do you love spending time with him? Because if you love him, you will want to spend time with him. If you think about any relationship that you have with someone you love, you want to spend time with them, don't you? I mean, I hope that you love your spouse and that you wake up and you want to spend time with them and not just get away from them. Abram wanted to spend time with God. He wanted to find that place where the Lord was, and he built an altar there, a place of communion, Hebron. When Abram came back to Canaan after some time of compromise, there was no hint from God of a scathing accusation against him. We don't hear from God, oh, you, you idolater, why did I ever pick you? you know, there's none of that, not even a hint. God simply reaffirms his promise to Abram. Open arms. He is ready to receive Abram back from his time away. And God says, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are. It's interesting that he doesn't say look at the place where you are, but from where you are. Lot looked at where he was at. Because we're so self-centered, it comes naturally to us to see where we're at. God calls Abram to look from where he was. Standing where you are, look out into the distance. That's your land. That's where you're going to be. See, Abram was instructed to look out and see the places surrounding him. 
where he came from, where he's going. Not to be fixed on where he is in the moment. And all too often we get too myopic of a view. We get too focused on what's happening to us and where we are in our journey that we forget to look around us, to look at where God has pulled us from and where he's trying to take us. Don't get too focused on where you are, where you're at, but look from where you are. That's one of the lessons that we can pull from this. And look, like I said, there's no hint of any kind of an accusation against Abram from God. If you've taken a detour, to put it lightly, if you're coming here from a place of compromise, there is no accusation waiting for you. There is only an open arm. There is only love from God. There's forgiveness. There are natural consequences, don't get me wrong. Some things just come with consequences, right? And that doesn't mean that God is punishing you for something, but the world works in certain ways. God wants you to return to him. He's not pushing you away. He's welcoming you back. He wants to go ahead and get on with the plan that he has for your life. And I think that's one of the biggest things that we see in chapter 13. God welcomes Abram back to his plan. He welcomes him back to the promised land. He reaffirms his promise. All right, Abraham. You're done messing around in Egypt. We've got some work to do. And it's, it's with love. And it's great to see that. And that's where we're going to wrap up our study this morning. Finishing up chapter 13. As we go into chapter 14, we're going to see there's a very, very interesting piece towards the end of it where we are introduced to this strange figure. Melchizedek. And we'll look at Melchizedek as he is a type of Jesus Christ. And there are some different thoughts surrounding Melchizedek. Is he the pre-incarnate Christ, uh, Christophany, an appearance of Jesus Christ before he was born in Bethlehem? Is it Jesus himself? Or is it a man who knew the Most High God? It says he was a priest of the Most High God, Is it just a man who we can see as a type of Jesus? So people have different views. We'll talk about uh, what, what we think. And that'll be an interesting study for us. So let's close our study this morning in a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.